The next item of business is First Minister's questions. Um, before I begin, I would just like to say that I intend to take constituency and general supplementaries after question two. So any member wishing to ask a question should press during question two. But for any members wishing to ask a supplementary specifically on questions three to six, they should press during the relevant question. And I call Douglas Ross. Thank you, Presiding Officer. It's been reported today that the average wait for an ambulance following a 999 call is six hours. First Minister, isn't this shocking and unacceptable? First Minister. Uh, absolutely anyone who waits longer than they should wait for an ambulance, uh, I find uh, that not uh, acceptable. We know the pressure our ambulance service is under right now uh, because of many of the other pressures in our National Health Service that have been uh, caused and indeed exacerbated in some respects uh, by the pandemic. So this is an issue that we're working very closely with the Scottish Ambulance Service on uh, to resolve. The Health Secretary has spoken to the Chief Executive of the Ambulance Service just this morning. Uh, for example, 90 additional technicians uh, will uh, come into the employment of the service next month. Uh, we are obviously funding uh, the Health Service. We bolstered investment by uh, £10.5 million pounds, uh, last year. An additional investment of uh, £20 million has been invested this year. And while any individual wait is uh, unacceptable and we need to work to resolve that, it is worth uh, bearing in mind that despite all of the challenges and despite our ambulance service serving some of the most uh, rural areas in the UK, um, over 2020-2021, our crews responded to over 70% of the highest priority calls in under 10 minutes and over 99% uh, in under 30 minutes. So we will continue to support our ambulance service through this challenging period as we will continue to support the entirety of the National Health Service. Douglas Ross. People are dialing 999. They are asking for an ambulance and on average they are waiting for six hours, not 10 minutes. And the First Minister tries to say this is because of the pandemic. Our ambulance staff and technicians have done fantastic work during the pandemic and before. But the problems started long before COVID-19. In 2018, a government report found only 20% of ambulance crews thought there was enough staff. A 2019 staff survey showed that demand for ambulance services had increased far beyond available resources. Almost half of paramedics in 2019 said they often thought about leaving the service. And just yesterday, the Unite convener of the Scottish Ambulance Service said serious adverse events have been on an upwards trajectory since the start of the year. They have gone through the roof, he said. This all adds up to a service in, cri in crisis well before COVID hit. Does the First Minister agree? First Minister. Um, I agree there were pressures uh, before COVID, but I, I don't think anybody uh, can uh, or should deny that those pressures have been significantly exacerbated uh, by COVID, not just here in Scotland, but we see uh, similar pressures in health services right across the UK and indeed further afield. Uh, but because uh, we have been aware of these pressures, we have been doing work to seek to address them. So, for example, last year we commissioned a working group to agree and implement a range of actions to improve turnaround times. So, as part of that, a total of 296 additional ambulance staff are being recruited um, as a result of investment that we've made available over the past uh, two years uh, in the part of Scotland that Douglas Ross uh, represents, the north of the country, an extra 67 frontline staff, which will be a, a mixture of experienced and newly qualified paramedics and 
technicians along with nine patient transport service staff uh, will be located across that region. Um, I don't and I will not stand here and uh, suggest in any way that people, anyone who is waiting uh, too long for an ambulance, is, uh, that that situation is in any way acceptable. Uh, but if we look uh, at the, the week, for example, up to the 5th of September, so this is the uh, most recent week, the Scottish Ambulance Service responded to 10,435 emergency incidents. That was up on the previous week. Uh, the median national response time uh, for all of the immediately life-threatening calls uh, for that week was nine minutes and three seconds. Now, that's slightly higher than we want it to be. The target is seven minutes. Uh, so the ambulance service is working hard under incredibly challenging circumstances. My job, the health secretary's job, is to support them through funding and other support to make sure that they can meet these challenges for the sake of the patients, uh, all patients across, the Scot uh, across Scotland who deserve a timely response from the ambulance service. Douglas Ross. People listening at home will be wondering about seven minutes. Seven minutes for an ambulance to come would be great for those people who are waiting hours, yeah. often yeah. in agony. All over Scotland, people are waiting for ambulances. And here are some examples. At Abbeyfield, assistant living complex in Bearsden, a resident had symptoms of a stroke and phoned for an ambulance at 2.30pm. They were not picked up until 4.45 a.m., over 14 hours later. A GP from Dumfries had called for an ambulance during a home visit and was advised of a four-hour wait. The patient reached hospital nine hours later, and the doctor told us the whole service is in crisis. When cases are life-threatening, ambulances are expected to arrive within seven minutes. That isn't happening. Jim from Pitlochery told us his 17-year-old son, who had collapsed by the side of the road, needed an ambulance when he fell unconscious. About 30 minutes later, with no ambulance in sight, and with his son's lips turning blue, he drove him to the nearest hospital. But even then, he struggled to get medical attention. Thankfully, a nurse came to the rescue, and his son is doing better. But Jim wanted me to ask the First Minister these questions. What would have happened if his son had taken a turn for the worse? And if this was a more vulnerable person, would they still be alive? First Minister. Well, I, I don't know, Jim may be watching, and if he is, I'll address him directly. First of all, I'm extremely sorry that the wait that you had uh, happened, um, and I don't think that's acceptable. Uh, I am trying to address these issues uh, genuinely, because I don't think the cases that Douglas Ross has cited are acceptable, and nothing I have said today suggests that they are. Um, we know the reasons uh, for the pressure on the ambulance service. There is uh, a variety of pressures on our National Health Service, and of course some of those pressures were there before COVID, but they have been significantly exacerbated. We know that our accident emergencies are under pressure. We know there is a backlog of treatment. So uh, one of the issues that the ambulance service uh, faces is longer turnaround times, which then puts a lot of pressure on uh, ambulance resources. So I recognise all of this, uh, and we are working hard with the ambulance service to address that. So nothing I have said or am saying is intended to suggest in any way that the kind of weights we've heard about today are acceptable. But what uh, I would also say, and you know, the figure I uh, cited in my last answer, uh, the median response time for the most urgent calls in the most recent week was just over nine minutes. That's not good enough because it should be within seven minutes. Uh, for amber calls, the median time was 21 minutes, 26 seconds. Again, that is slightly above target. Um, so there is uh, work to be done here, but that is exactly why we are making the investment, we are supporting the recruitment of additional uh, paramedics, 
additional technicians uh, to bring uh, these waiting times down again. And of course, uh, perhaps even more importantly, because some of the pressure on the ambulance service comes from pressures el elsewhere in the health service, which is why the NHS recovery plan and the investment that supports that recovery plan is so important. And we'll continue to focus uh, with the service, with health boards, including the Scottish Ambulance Service, every day to address these very serious issues. Douglas Ross. I agree with the First Minister. This is not good enough. This government has allowed the long-term issues to spiral into a crisis. The knock-on problems are bringing our NHS to its knees and putting lives at risk, and it's only going to get worse this winter. People can't see a GP in person. They call for an ambulance, but it's delayed for hours. When they reach A&E, waiting times are at their worst levels since records began. The Unite Union said this week that ambulances were parked outside hospitals for seven hours, missing three other 999 calls while they waited. But this week's programme for government set out nothing, no new money for the Scottish Ambulance Service. Will the First Minister accept that this is a crisis and will she tell us what she's going to do about it now before lives are lost? First Minister. Well, firstly, the ambulance service is receiving additional money. Um, we increased investment by more than £10 million last year. Additional investment of £20 million is being invested this year. Um, and the £1 billion uh, recovery plan funding uh, will include uh, support for the ambulance service, as it will include support um, across, uh, for health services across the country. Um, I, I don't uh, challenge uh, any of uh, what Douglas Ross is saying in terms of there are big, big issues facing our National Health Service. But it is because we know that, that we are making the investment and doing the work with the service to address these issues. Uh, where I do take issue, um, and this you know, doesn't uh, make things any easier for patients across the country waiting too long, whether that's for elective treatment or A&E treatment, or indeed for an ambulance. But these issues for Scotland, for other countries across uh, the UK, and indeed the world, uh, have been significantly deepened and exacerbated by a, a once in a century global pandemic. And therefore, we need to support our NHS to recover from that. Uh, you can find headlines just today from other parts of the UK about the longest waiting times on record. Uh, some of the problems our ambulance service is facing, ambulance services are facing elsewhere. That doesn't, that doesn't remove the responsibility it doesn't Ms. remove Mr. the responsibility. Kerr, excuse me, First Minister. Um, I would be grateful if we could hear the First Minister. Thank you. The point I'm making is a serious one, Presiding Officer. That doesn't in any way take away the responsibility of the Scottish Government to address these problems in Scotland. But I think most people do understand the exceptionally difficult circumstances uh, that have prevailed over the past 18 months and the difficulties that all governments and all health services are having as we try to recover. That's why we're making the investment, that's why we've got the recovery plan and that's why we'll continue every single day to support our service and everybody who works in it uh, to recover and to get the NHS fully back on track. Question number two, Anna Sarwar. Officer, today this Parliament will vote on the introduction of vaccine passports. Scottish Labour will not support these proposals. We have supported the government at key moments throughout this pandemic, but this is about what works and what will make a meaningful difference. The scientific advisory group SAGE, which the Scottish Government's Chief Medical Officer sits on, says that any proposals should consider these three key points. One, isolate those that are infectious from the rest of the population. Vaccine passports won't do that. Two, reduce the likelihood that they enter high-risk settings or situations. Vaccine passports won't do that. Three, attempt to decrease the transmission risk from an infectious person 
in any given environment. And given the high transmissibility of the Delta variant, vaccine passports won't do that. So can the First Minister tell us what evidence has led her and her ministers to change their minds, disagree with these scientists and now back vaccine passports? First Minister. Um, firstly, I haven't changed my mind. I've said to this Parliament uh, on uh, the 3rd of August, most recently, before that, in April and February, that we were considering the issue of vaccine certification. We hadn't ruled it out, but we wanted to properly consider all of the issues, and that is what we have done. We've also listened to and continue to listen to a range of evidence. Um, I would recommend uh, to all members of the Parliament ahead of the debate today to read uh, on, on Twitter the uh, comments of Stephen Riker, um, who is one of the uh, members of the Scottish Government Advisory Group, but entirely independent, who very fairly and I think very well sets out both the benefits of vaccine passports, uh, sets out the conditions uh, that need to prevail in order to make their operation a success, but also very frankly sets out some of the limitations of them. And that takes me to the nub, I suppose, of Anna Sarwar's question. Vaccine certification is not a solution, a 100% solution in and of itself. All of these things uh, that Anna Sarwar has rightly uh, run through have to be done uh, but in addition, vaccine passports can provide an added layer of protection. So that if you have, for example, a nightclub where people come together, where there is the potential for super spreading uh, events, then if you make sure that in addition to all of these other protections, uh, that everybody in that nightclub has been fully vaccinated, what you do is you don't eradicate the risk of transmission, but you reduce the risk of transmission and you significantly reduce the risk of illness. And also so crucially, you give an alternative to the possibility uh, as we go into winter of further closures of these kind of events. So is that a, a complete solution? No. But in the face of this really challenging pandemic, there is no one single solution. We've got to take all of the ways that we can to as proportionately uh, as possible keep the country as safe as possible. And that's the uh, responsible way in which this government is going to continue to act. And I think some of what we've heard from the opposition suggests that a bit more uh, genuine grown-up politics on this issue would go a long way. Anna Sarwar. I think, I mean, uh, I had respect for um, all of the First Minister's answer, apart from the end part of that. Uh, is she saying that all those businesses worried out there are being disrespectful? Is she saying all those that thousands of people have emailed us are being disrespectful? These are serious questions which deserve serious answers. Uh, the First Minister has published a document this morning that contains no evidence that this will make a difference, and no details of how it will work. She references nightclubs. This document suggests we still don't even know what nightclubs means, and they'll be expected to introduce these measures in three weeks' time. And she is expecting businesses across the country, many of which have only just reopened, and some which are still closed, to implement and enforce it in that short period of time. That will put immense pressure on them, but even greater pressure on the staff having to administer it. Earlier this year, the UK government undertook a consultation on vaccine passports. It received 52,000 responses, including from major industry bodies that would be impacted by this change. So can the First Minister detail what engagement she has had with the relevant sectors? And can she confirm if there has been a public consultation in Scotland? And if so, how many responses were received? First Minister. Engagement is ongoing. It will continue to be ongoing. This Parliament is going to debate and vote on this this afternoon um, and we engage with the public on a range of issues all of the time. Um, can I say a couple of things? Firstly, I, 
I did make a comment about Anna Sarwar's position. It wasn't a comment about anybody else's position, because I do think to have said categorically, as he did at the weekend, no matter what, he was going to vote against something, actually, frankly, um, is opposition for opposition's sake. And I think that reflects rather poorly on him. But that is my opinion. People can agree or disagree with that. Um, in terms of businesses, of course businesses have concerns um, about any of the measures we have to take to try to tackle and contain COVID. I wish we weren't in this position at all. I wish we weren't even having to consider any measures to try to uh, constrain the spread of an infectious virus. But we are in this situation. It's a very difficult situation, particularly with the increased transmissibility of Delta, which is one of the other things that has changed since we first started talking about this. And what I do know is that businesses in these higher risk settings um, would, I think, and, and there'll be a you know, variety of opinions, I'm sure, but on balance, if this is a choice between being able to continue to operate uh, over the next few months or finding themselves perhaps facing a period of closure again, then this targeted proportionate measure is one that I think many would prefer to closure. And of course, you know, this is something that Scotland is not alone in considering. Uh, many, an increasing number of countries across Europe are already using vaccine certification. Uh, they're already using it on a much more wide-ranging basis than we are. Uh, they're seeing, in some cases, France, for example, it pushing up rates of uh, vaccination uptake and also uh, helping to constrain and reduce transmission. We need to use every tool at our disposal to drive down infection rates, to keep people safe at the same time as we keep our economy open. And anybody who frankly buries their head in the sand in the face of, face of that is not doing the economy or any business any favours. Anna Sarwar. You, you wanted us to wait for the publication of this document. There are businesses that will be impacted by this that have longer cocktail menus than this document. So I think we need some real-life real experience from the First Minister on this one. So rather than create a new system, we should be fixing the systems we already have. That means after 18 months, finally giving Test and Protect the support it needs. We know the vaccine works. We know it reduces hospitalizations and deaths. But even if you've had the vaccine, you can still get the virus and you can still spread the virus. So making sure someone is negative going into a venue is more important. But under these proposals, Someone who doesn't have a vaccine passport and doesn't have the virus will not be allowed to enter venues, but someone who does have a passport and does have the virus will be able to walk straight in. How does that make sense? There are no details published in the paper, no evidence to back these proposals, no meaningful engagement with the sectors involved, no public consultation. First Minister, is it not the case that you are rushing through this proposal in Parliament in an attempt to look in control of a virus that is clearly out of control? First Minister. You know, I think most people watching this will probably breathe a sigh of relief that Anna Sauer is not standing here because, you know, clever quips might sound good in a student union, but when you're actually trying to deal with a global pandemic, yeah. it is more important that you have the, you have the solutions that help to keep people safe. So let's take a, some of the points in turn. Let's take some of the points in turn. Anna Sarwar appears to say that he thinks negative test results should be used in place of uh, proof of vaccine. Now, we do 
suggest to people that they test themselves regularly. Uh, but one of the constraints, uh, and LFD testing is a really important part of our overall response, but one of the constraints, which means it doesn't make sense to put too much reliance on them for the kind of thing that we're talking about here right now, is that they are self-reported tests. This is a point that I heard the UK Vaccines Minister uh, make yesterday in the House of Commons. So we've got to be careful that we don't introduce uh, false security around a system like that. Now, the other point is that you can still get the virus if you're vaccinated. Well, anybody looking at the statistics just now knows that. But vaccination reduces your risk of getting the virus. So if you're saying to somebody, do you want to be in a nightclub where some people are unvaccinated or do you want to be in a nightclub where everybody's vaccinated? In the latter, your risk of getting the virus is going to be significantly lower than in the former. Is it eradicated? No, but no single measure will eradicate risk. So this is about having a basket of measures. It's about testing. It's uh, about making sure that people uh, isolate when they are required to but it's also about making sure that we use vaccine to its fullest effect, uh, drive up the rates of vaccination and then make sure we're using the protection of vaccination um, as effectively as possible. So this is part of a solution. And, you know, Anna Sarwar says we're rushing this through in Scotland. Actually, in Scotland, we're behind the curve in a European sense because so many countries are already doing this and are actually finding in reality the benefits of this. So let's get on with it and discharge our responsibility to keep this country as safe as possible. Thank you. I call, I call Alistair Allen. The period of October to February can often be a challenging time of the year for CalMac. The company uses this period to dry dock and refit vessels as the tourist season comes to an end. However, with continued demand for staycations, it seems likely Scotland's islands will continue to be busy beyond the normal shoulder months. So with this in mind, can the First Minister outline what preparations are being made for this year's maintenance programme? First Minister. Well, we do need to ensure vessels are safe and uh, well maintained. Um, every CalMac vessel uh, requires essential uh, maintenance annually over the winter months. Scheduling of the overhaul programme, including the relief vessels used, is, is complex. That must uh, take account of a range of uh, factors. Um, and CalMac uh, now has a long-term uh, strategy in place uh, for uh, dry uh, docking. Um, so we continue to encourage CalMac to do everything possible to minimise the impact caused uh, by uh, maintenance work over uh, the winter period and, of course, continuing to support CalMac uh, to deliver services uh, in the face of the challenges that COVID uh, continue, continue to pose for all of us. Jamie Green. Thank you, Presiding Officer. From April 2019 to July 2021, there have been more than 7,000 instances of girls between the ages of 10 and 16 being reported missing. <clears throat> I think we all agree these are horrific statistics for everyone concerned. But we also know that poor mental health is very often the root cause of these incidents. And we also know that the proportion of young people waiting more than a year for specialist help has trebled in the last 12 months. So let me ask, what action will the First Minister take now to address the absolute shame that is young persons' mental health waiting times in this country? First Minister. Well, as I set out on Tuesday when I outlined the programme for government, uh, we're making 
in immediate investment uh, of £120 million uh, into mental health, with a, a particular focus on prevention and early intervention. Um, we're already funding health boards uh, to improve community children and adolescent mental health services, expansion of community uh, services uh, from age uh, 18 uh, to 25, uh, and also the funding that I announced uh, will enable the clearing of historic uh, waiting lists, which I accept uh, are too high, uh, were high going into COVID, but have been further exacerbated by the experience of COVID. So the funding that we will uh, make available is specifically targeted uh, to dealing with the issue uh, that Jamie Green raises. Alex Rowley. Thank you, President Officer. We can argue about the impact of failed Tory austerity on uh, public services, the impact of a failure in the Scottish Government to workforce plan and the impact to COVID. But the one thing that is absolutely clear is that much of our public services across Scotland are in meltdown. Therefore, how can the First Minister possibly justify using government resources, taxpayers' money, on working up proposals for an independence referendum at a time when surely the whole of the Scottish Government, the whole of this Parliament, should be focused on addressing the emergency that we have in our public services? First Minister. Actually, I don't think we can argue about the impact of UK government austerity on services the length and breadth of Scotland. It has been utterly devastating. And the problem is, unless we do something about it to get ourselves out of the grip of Tory government after Tory government, uh, people across Scotland are going to suffer more of it. Just this week, uh, we've seen a national insurance increase that will punish uh, the lowest paid in our society. We're about... We're about... We talk about... We all want to see extra money uh, for public services, but raising that money in a way that punishes the poor is the bit, frankly, we don't agree with and nobody uh, should agree with if they care about these issues. We're also about to see from this UK government uh, the biggest overnight cut to social security since the 1930s uh, as they take away the £20 per week uplift to universal credit. So, and this may be something that Alec Rowley and I just have to disagree on, and he can explain it to his own constituents. But I do think it's right that people in Scotland get the opportunity to choose a different future, to choose a better future, where we take control over social security and how we raise our funds into this parliament. So we don't have to stand here and, to use his phrase, argue about the impact of another government on people the length and breadth of Scotland. Beatrice Wishart. Thank you, President Officer. My constituent, Jason Campbell, a young person who I'm told has previously met with the First Minister and read a poem on fishing, has raised with me concerns about the safety of fishermen, including some of his friends. There are reports of non-UK fishing vessels, and to quote Jason, dumping all their fishing gear overboard. This is dangerous as well as bad for the marine environment. Jason also asks why fishery patrol vessels are not doing more at sea. So, First Minister, can you tell Jason what is being done to keep our fishing vessels and those on board them safe at sea? First Minister. Uh, can I uh, thank the member for that question? I, I, I do remember uh, Jason, and uh, if uh, the member can pass my uh, best wishes to him. Uh, I'm very happy either uh, through Beatrice Wisher or Jason himself, if he wants to email me directly, I'm happy to engage with him uh, to set out exactly uh, what uh, the Scottish Government and our agencies do to keep fishermen as safe as possible. Our fishing protection vessels have a key part to play there, but he clearly has uh, some uh, very real concerns there, and it uh, certainly reflects my memory of him as a very engaged 
aged uh, young man, so I'd be very happy to have a further discussion with him directly. Question number three, Maggie Chapman. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what discussions the Scottish Government has had with ScotRail and the trade unions regarding industrial action on the network. First Minister. The Transport Minister meets regularly with ScotRail and trade unions. He met uh, with trade union representatives on the 24th of June, subsequently with Abellio. Uh, I met with the Scottish Trade Union Congress on the 12th of August. On each occasion, uh, we expressed our disappointment about the current dispute affecting ScotRail Sunday services and urged all parties to seek resolution. Uh, I also understand that the Transport Minister is meeting with Unite today and has also offered to meet with the other rail unions. Um, obviously, we want all parties to get round the table and identify solutions uh, to the challenges that are facing our rail services. Maggie Chapman. The First Minister for her response, and I also note the comments made on Tuesday by the Transport Minister, in which he called for everyone to act responsibly. It has been six months since most people were able to get a train on a Sunday. It seems that Abellio has little interest in acting responsibly, given that the ScotRail franchise is soon to be transferred into public ownership. It is clear we need a long-term partnership between the workers, passengers and the government to avoid the problems that have arisen with Abellio. Can the First Minister tell me how her government will bring the situation to an end in the short term? And can she also give it an assurance that when ScotRail is brought into public ownership, the governance structure will include representatives of workers and passengers, as well as appointees on the board? First Minister. Well, I can certainly give an assurance that fair work in, uh, part of fair work in, in my good industrial relations and good uh, engagement and uh, discussion with trade unions and I would uh, certainly expect that to be at the heart uh, of the uh, ScotRail services as they come into public ownership. In terms of the current dispute, um, I know members are aware of uh, the reasons lying behind uh, that dispute uh, arising out of an agreement during COVID for enhanced rest day working that now that additional uh, ticket examiners and conductors have been recruited, uh, the uh, issue of excessive rest day working has been resolved. Uh, the unions and workers, and I understand why this would be the case, want to keep the uh, temporary allowance and make it permanent. Uh, ScotRail's view is that that is not sustainable for the future. Um, I would call again on both parties to get round the table to find an agreement to that. It's in nobody's interest, uh, not least uh, the workers, uh, to have this uh, dispute continue uh, any longer. So we will continue uh, to encourage that and of course we will continue to do the work uh, which we uh, expect to conclude in the early part of next year to bring ScotRail into full public ownership. Question number four, Christine Graham. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what discussions the Scottish Government has had regarding the functioning of corporate travel management. First Minister. The managed isolation service in Scotland is operated under a UK Government contract which places the responsibility for setting uh, the quality and levels of service on uh, the UK Government. Uh, the Scottish Government's International Passenger Coordination Team is in regular contact with Corporate Travel Management, which is the UK Government's travel agent, and we continue to work with them to ensure a high quality service for travellers. Christine Graham. Uh, I thank the First Minister for her response and as we're all aware this is very distressful and costly for those students coming from Red List country and I want to put on uh, the record my thanks to the universities stepping in with practical help and I of course appreciate that CTM was tasked by Westminster for this and I do understand the relationship with the Scottish Government's International Travel Coordination Team liaising with CTM the Westminster arm. Can I ask if there has been any positive response? Are we any further forward for those students who are very anxious to start their courses. 
First Minister. Well, firstly, can I uh, very much agree with Christine Graham's comments about international students. We always want to offer a warm welcome. Uh, they make a very significant cultural, economic and intellectual contribution to our universities and indeed to the whole country, and uh, they are welcome here. Uh, Government officials, Scottish government officials, have been engaging uh, directly with universities on the issues that have been highlighted in this question. They have contacted CTM, uh, who say they are addressing these issues as a priority, and uh, my officials will continue to work uh, with the universities to improve processes. And of course, students should contact their universities if they continue to experience issues with the booking system. Um, in recognition of the difficult circumstances that have faced international students, uh, the Scottish Government has also taken steps to put in place support. So, for example, international and EU students can apply for financial hardship support from the Scottish Government's Higher Education Coronavirus Discretionary Fund. Question number five, Donald Cameron. To ask the First Minister whether she will provide an update on HIAL's proposed centralisation of air traffic control services. First Minister. While this is a matter for HIAL, clearly the Scottish Government has a strong interest and we are liaising and monitoring the process closely. Uh, the investment being made in air traffic control is essential to secure the long-term future of air services in the Highlands and Islands. Uh, the objective of the Central Surveillance Centre in Inverness is to ensure safer, more sustainable and more reliable air services for the communities that rely on them. Uh, we know that this decision uh, may affect where staff work in the future and I understand that HIAL is engaging directly with Prospect Union on the detail of a commuting policy and other measures to mitigate that. Uh, but we also shouldn't lose sight of what this investment and change is intended to deliver in the long term, which is security for islands connectivity uh, with related social and economic benefits. Donald Cameron. Yesterday, the Union Prospect sent a letter signed by representatives of all five major political parties, as well as the three island local authority leaders, calling for an urgent meeting with the Transport Minister in light of the impact that this proposed centralisation will have on local jobs on the islands. And I understand that a ministerial meeting with stakeholders is proposed to happen in two months' time. But given the urgency here, will the First Minister instruct the Transport Minister to bring this meeting forward? And can she explain how this centralisation can be justified, given her government's stated intention to encourage people to move to our islands and reverse depopulation. You know, there are some serious and, and perfectly valid issues in there. These are complex issues where, of course, we want to see repopulation of our islands, but we've also got to make sure that there are sustainable uh, services that support the connectivity of our islands, and these are often uh, complex issues that require very careful thought. In terms of uh, the Transport Minister meeting uh, with Prospect, my understanding is that he's due to meet both STUC and Prospect uh, next month to discuss aviation generally, but I'm sure this issue will feature. We'll certainly look to see whether diaries can uh, enable that meeting to be brought forward. Uh, it is important that that engagement uh, takes place. It's also important that HIAL, as I said in my um, original answer, uh, engages directly with Prospect to address some of these issues that have been raised about how we can uh, make or they can make these changes uh, that improve the sustainability of the services. The kind of model that is being uh, discussed here is one that already um, operates uh, at, for example, London City uh, Airport, uh, which is very different, obviously, from our islands. But this is about uh, the sustainability of these services longer term. So, Important issues have been raised by the union here, and I would expect HIAL to engage properly with them. Um, and as I said a moment ago, uh, I will ask the Transport Minister to look to see whether the meeting can be accelerated. Emma Roddick. 
Clearly, this is very challenging for island communities who really value the air traffic provision being delivered locally because it gives them a sense of security and it ensures that much-needed skilled jobs are based in our islands. For obvious reasons, people are nervous about the implications of HIAL's new proposed centre in Inverness. What reassurance can the First Minister provide, particularly regarding what might happen to these jobs in future? First Minister. In terms of uh, the jobs, the issues around relocation are important, and those were the ones I was alluding to. I think it is important that HIAL engages with the unions and with workers to look at how uh, there are policies in place that allow uh, workers, uh, if they're working under this new system, nevertheless to continue to live in and contribute to our islands. That will not uh, always be easy, but that is the work that we are expecting HIAL to, to engage in properly. Uh, some of the other concerns, um, and uh, you know, I've had these issues raised with me directly, uh, in Shetland for example, uh, are around safety um, and again these issues have got to be taken seriously. Uh, for example Logan Air, uh, which is the main airline, airline flying in the Highlands and Islands um, and already operating under this system at London City are supportive uh, of the changes in the safety benefits that they say will be uh, delivered, uh, but also new air traffic control procedures and the operation of a centre like this will only go live following a rigorous assessment by and approval by the Civil Aviation Authority. So I, I do understand the concerns that have been raised here. I, you know, I think it is important to say that, uh, and therefore there is a responsibility on HIAL and indeed on the Scottish Government to, to seek to address those concerns as we move forward. Rhoda Grant. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I would disagree with um, the First Minister in that the programme is in essential to ensure the long-term viability or indeed safety of air traffic in the Highlands and Islands. Digital Scotland classed the project as an amber-red risk. Added to that, the Sundra Radar project, which is part of this scheme, is currently believed to be running six to 12 months behind schedule and costs have already increased. Can I ask if the First Minister is still convinced that this is the right project to go forward with and what steps she's taking to avoid another vanity transport project in the Highlands and Islands? First Minister. Uh, I think, I mean, I thank Rhoda Grant for a question, and I think um, it is a perfectly reasonable question. I'm, I'm not sure anybody would describe this as a vanity project. It is there are sustainability issues in the services as are, and therefore this is about improving and securing the sustainability of the services in the future. In terms of uh, some of Rhoda Grant's uh, points, uh, the project uh, is still at an early stage, but it is proceeding in line with the approved business case, and HIAL obviously have the responsibility to ensure that that continues to be uh, the case. And on the points about safety, again, you know, there can be no compromise on safety um, on any aviation matter, which is why uh, the point I made in my previous answer about the processes that have to be gone through uh, resulting in ultimately approval by the Civil Aviation Authority are so important. So, you know, again, just to say, I, I recognise these concerns. A change like this is always going to result in worries uh, and questions for people and therefore HIAL and indeed the Scottish Government will uh, address those uh, in order to give the reassurance that people need. Question number six, Mercedes Vialba. To ask, the, sorry, to ask the First Minister what steps the Scottish Government is taking ahead of COP26 regarding the future of oil and gas exploration and securing a just transition for workers. 
First Minister. Well, while oil and gas uh, is reserved and issues of licensing and exploration of offshore oil and gas are reserved to the UK Government, we have called uh, for the UK Government uh, to significantly enhance the climate conditionality associated with offshore exploration and production and to reassess licences already issued but where field development has not yet commenced. Uh, the programme for Government includes a commitment to develop an energy just transition plan. Uh, we've committed to working with communities and those most impacted uh, across Scotland, including of course our very highly skilled oil and gas workforce to co-design that plan and uh, we've also committed to take forward a 10-year £500 million just transition fund uh, for the North East and Murray. Mercedes Vialba. I thank the First Minister for her response. Um, the Scottish Government can't make the same mistakes as the Tories and leave whole communities facing unemployment. An offshore training passport would allow oil and gas workers to move freely between offshore and onshore energy sectors. And the government should really be supporting standardisation of skills across sectors. So will the First Minister commit today to developing an offshore training passport as supported by Friends of the Earth and the RMT? First Minister. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy to consider all constructive uh, discussions. Happy to ask the Minister to uh, engage directly with the member. Um, these are exactly the kind of constructive proposals that we need. Will every constructive proposal uh, be able to be taken forward? Uh, no, that's really the case, but we will, because we are so serious about a just transition, uh, engage properly in all of these issues. Um, I suspect I am a fair bit older uh, than the member, but I uh, have memories, first-hand memories, uh, of the devastation in the community I grew up in uh, of the mistakes that previous governments made um, around uh, deindustrialisation. We mustn't repeat these mistakes in the process of decarbonisation and that's why uh, the just transition process is so important. So uh, I would thank uh, Mercedes Velba uh, for that question and uh, happy to engage on the detail. Liam Kerr. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Given the Oil and Gas Authority report endorsed by Sir Ian Wood, showing the carbon footprint from imported gas is more than double that of domestically produced, does the First Minister agree that whilst there remains a Scottish demand, currently the most environmentally friendly approach and one which recognises the climate emergency is to ensure we support the Scottish oil and gas sector? First Minister. Well, where I do agree, um, and let me try and find the, the points of agreement here, is that we must make this transition, not just in a way that is just for workers, and that is fundamentally important, but also in a way and at a pace that doesn't uh, become counterproductive because it inadvertently uh, increases reliance on imports. So I think in principle that point is important. It's one I have made many times myself. Underneath that, though, there is greater complexity. You know, right now we uh, export uh, a significant proportion of what is produced in the North Sea, and we already import a lot of the oil and gas that is used. So uh, there is often greater complexity lying underneath that sort of headline um, claim. So we need to engage properly with these things. We are in a transition, whether we like it or not, from fossil fuels to renewable and low-carbon sources of energy. We owe that to the planet, and none of us can escape that responsibility, or none of us should try to escape that responsibility. Um, but we need to do that in a way that is fair and just and actually has the intended effect. So these things uh, require a lot of very careful consideration. They require um, a very uh, careful amount of work. Uh, but we cannot escape the moral and economic responsibility we have to make the transition and to meet our net zero targets. And this government is uh, incredibly serious about doing that. And on occasion, not just on this issue, but I'm sure on a whole range of other issues, facing up to the difficult uh, challenges that that entails. Karen Adam. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, President Officer. First Minister, I recently met with the Kuwait 
and discussed the importance of putting an equalities lens on the just transition for workers. What steps is the Scottish Government taking to ensure women have equity within the just transition for workers, particularly as women have been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? First Minister. Well, I think that's uh, an excellent and extremely important point. In fact, it's one that should run through all of uh, the work we do as government. The programme for government recognises uh, the point that Karen Adam has just made. The impacts of COVID have been, and will no doubt continue to be, experienced disproportionately by different groups, and that includes women. So I can assure Karen Adam that our engagement uh, on the development of just transition plans will amplify, seek to amplify the voices of underrepresented groups and actively work uh, to make sure we're creating a better, greener future for all. Uh, more generally, we've committed to taking forward a programme of work to embed equality, inclusion and human rights throughout uh, Scotland. So this is important work as part of that overall commitment to making sure uh, the transition happens, but it happens in a way that is just and fair. As I have a little time in hand, I call Rachel Hamilton for a supplementary. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Constituents are reporting errors in their vaccination records, which are held on NHS Scotland website. Wrongly logged dates and incorrect vaccine types are being flagged. First Minister, the only way to resolve this is by sitting in a very long telephone queue. One constituent reported she uh, waited in a queue of 92 people. So is the First Minister aware of the extent of this problem? Does she trust the system? And will she consider a vaccine data resolution system? First Minister. Um, in short, Presiding Officer, uh, yes, I trust the system. Uh, as I've said in uh, relation to COVID and the, the different systems and approaches we've had to take over the past 18 months, not least the vaccine programme generally, uh, in a, a system as big and complex, uh, there will be individual cases of things going wrong. We shouldn't shy away from that. But what is important is we have processes in place to fix these things. I think yesterday, uh, during uh, my COVID statement, I gave uh, the number of the helpline that people can phone to have any mistakes like that rectified. And uh, I would encourage them to do so and uh, I know the system is uh, taking on a, a number of these cases and very quickly resolving them on a daily basis. Thank you. That concludes First Minister's questions. We will now move on to members' business and I ask members to please leave the chamber quietly.